Well, the word vintage just refers to um, the year in which a wine uh, was formed. And and the vintage of the wine, the reason people are so into their different wines, is because unlike Coca-Cola, which always tastes the same in every country, in every bottle, wherever you open it, um, wine changes not only from region to region, but also from year to year in which it was produced. And so the, the vintage of the wine or the year that it came from is an important part of the, the whole experience. Um, a trained sommelieria, som, sommelier, a trained wine expert, um, sommelier, I know how to say that word, sommelier, uh, he'll be able to tell which year the wine was made simply by the, the bouquet, which is the smell, or the luminescence, the way it looks when held up to light, or the taste. Some regions produce a great wine one year and then a mediocre wine the following year, and it, it all depends on various factors. Usually it has to do with the, the sunlight and the rainfall and the soil and the combination of all those things together. There might be a frost, there might be a hail, which uh, destroys the canopies or the vines themselves. Excess heat can be a problem because it results in the wine being too alcoholic or overripe. Um, but if everything is perfect, and there's the right amount of rainfall, which comes at the right time, and the, the, the grapes uh, ripen at the exact right pace, then that is known as a good year. And so wine from a particular win vineyard might have one particularly good year that it's known for. Well, winemakers sometimes like to complain that in a, in a good year, there's really nothing for them to do because nature has fallen in such a way that they don't have to counteract it in any way, and they call it boring because... Um, a good vintage makes for a good year, but it makes for um, nothing for them to do. Well, in the same way, in your life, there's going to be good years, there's going to be bad years, right? There's, there's going to, you might live in the same place, and everything might be going in a certain way, and then there's just outside factors that start affecting that. Maybe something in, in your relationships, maybe something in your health, maybe something in your career, or your church environment, or the economy, the country, or, or there's something that that doesn't fall exactly the way you like it, and you could say, well, that was a bad year. Well, what we're hoping for this year is that we're going to have a good year. Um, I mean, I think since we've all lived through 2020, anything's pretty much a good year since that, right? That wasn't a great vintage of a year. Or was it? Um, this is a concept that we're, we're sometimes, we don't think deeply about these things. We think it's a good year when things go well for me, and it's a bad year when things go badly for me. But is that what the Scripture says? So I have a question for you. This is a question that I heard from a pastor once that absolutely changed my life. And so I want to pose this question to you. Imagine you had a choice of what this year would be like for you. And you could choose to make the year any way you wanted. But there's a catch. In option A, you could have an ideal year, one where there was good health, financial Prosperity, career success, relational bliss with all the people that you have relationships with. But, this is the catch, at the end of that year, you would be no closer to Jesus than you are today. At the end of that year, you would not have grown in your maturity. You would have not grown in your love or understanding of Christ. Option B, imagine a year where everything goes wrong. You have a major health trial that is physically painful, uh, emotionally taxing. You have relationship tension with loved ones that leaves you stressed and tossing and turning every night. Uh, your career 
has a major downturn, there's some sort of setback, maybe an accusation, uh, there is financial loss, and you're put at the need um, of other people to help you even get through that. But after all of that, at the end of the year, you are far closer to Christ than you've ever been before. And you have matured in your faith, your understanding of Him and His sufferings. Your prayer life has increased and your spiritual maturity is at an all-time high. Which of those years would you choose? And when that question was posed to me, it was extremely convicting because I know I would choose the good year. And yet, the good year would not really be a good year, right? It would be one that the world would choose. It's the one that an unbeliever would choose, where everything goes well for you. But if your highest goal is to know Christ and to love Christ and understand Him and His sufferings and for Him to be real to you and for you to grow in your spiritual maturity and become more and more Christ-like, then a good year is whatever year brings you closer to Christ. And so we need to realize that. We need to long for that. The good news is that the Bible does tell us ways of becoming more like Christ. Because I know you might be thinking, isn't there any way I can become more like Christ without the pain and the suffering and the loss of job and the loss of money and the loss of health and the loss of relationships? Isn't there any way? And, and the good news is yes and no. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, tonight. We're going to, it's a topical sermon, so just we're going to deal with this issue of like how we can grow and be more like Christ. We're going to look at four ways that the church will help you become more like Christ. So that is the good news, that the church is here to help you become more like Christ. And there's four ways, and we're going to look at those, and each one will have various scriptures that we'll turn to. Um, sitting under preaching is one of the ways that you can become more like Christ. Submitting to spiritual leaders is another way the church helps you become more like Christ. Thirdly, serving each other. And then finally, the painful one, suffering in the church. We're going to look at that. And all of these are factors where the church can help you attain that goal of growing in your Christ-likeness. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, unless you have 2 Timothy 3.16 memorized, which I hope you do. Um, you can turn there. That's the first place we'll go. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but preaching is the central part of our worship experience on a Sunday. Preaching the Word of God is the center of our church experience, and that is by design. Now, if you have grown up in a church like this one, or you're one of the founding members, we have many of those here, or um, those of you who uh, came to know Christ at a church under a preacher like Steve Lawson, who preaches from the Word of God, this would seem completely normal to you. It would seem normal that the pastor stands up front for, I mean, in Steve's day, 65 minutes at times, right? Um, explaining the Word of God to you, where there's fewer songs and maybe not as much fellowship time, and there's a lot of Bible. And you might come an hour early to church and go to the equipping hour, and guess what's being taught in those classes? Bible, or books about Bible verses, and you come on Wednesday, we have a service, and there's Bible, and Q&A about the Bible, and yes, there's prayer, and you send your kids to Awana, and there's Bible, and etc., etc. That is by design. Maybe you come out of a different church background where it was very jarring to you to come and sit and hear a 42 and a half minute sermon um, from me, whereas you're used to maybe having 40 minutes of songs and singing, and then just perhaps a 10, 12 
last-minute sermonette um, afterwards, an encouragement that might be about something that's happening in the news or, or something inspirational that may have a Bible verse or two in it, um, but not really be based in Scripture. And so the reason we do what we do and have preaching be the central feature of the worship service is because throughout church history, that has been proven to be the most effective way to grow people spiritually, where you're hearing the Word of God read, you're having it explained to you, and you're having somebody exhort you to obey it. And that comes from a theological principle and the commands in Scripture where preachers tell other preachers what to do. Shall we say pastors tell other pastors what to do, and the main thing is to be a preacher. So, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you have the letters of First and Second Timothy are letters that Paul, the apostle, wrote to a young pastor, um, the pastor of the church of Ephesus. His name was Timothy, telling him what to do and how to structure the church and the qualification for elders, etc. And the, the, main, the majority of the imperatives to Timothy of what he is supposed to do as the pastor of this church is to preach the word to teach, to exhort, to encourage, uh, all sorts of speaking words that he is supposed to do that come from the Word of God. And it all rests on this verse in verse 16. Let me read for you from verse... Uh, well, we'll take from verse 12, because that's also relevant. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or perfect or mature, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, verse 2 of chapter 4, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so this concept that the Bible is breathed out by God, it is a product that comes from God's mind through the Holy Spirit who moved holy men of God to produce the scriptures. So from that, we know that the Bible has no mistakes in it. It is, it's inerrant. We know that when it says something, it is perfectly authoritative and infallible. Why? Because it comes from God. And because of that, when we gather, we want to talk to God in prayer, we want to sing to God in worship, and we want to hear from God, but God does not speak audibly to us today. The way He speaks to us is through the Word. Everybody all over the world who believes in God has the same Bible. In different translations, sure, but it's all the same Word of God. And, and what more do we want to have than hearing from God and His Word what He expects from us, what His will is, what He's like? And so that's why when we gather, we study what God says. And we hear it preached. And this makes us more like Christ. Here at 
Christ fellowship, we, we preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach in season and out of season. We preach the whole counsel of God, Old Testament, New Testament. I also hope you notice that it's not teaching. Teaching um, is a little bit more two-way. Teaching is what we, we try to encourage in the uh, equipping hours, for example, or in Awana and in the youth group where there's a little bit more give and take. What do you think? How would you respond in this situation? Do you understand this? There's, that's what teaching is. Preaching is different. Preaching is a declaration of authority. That's why it can only be done from God's word. The preacher has no authority over you besides what the word of God has over all of us. And that's why it's important that he is able to show you this is what the Bible says. This is what it means. And therefore, this is how we need to live. Because the Bible is God's word. And this part where it says it's profitable for teaching, that's doctrine and, and learning things about Jesus, for reproof, that tells you when you're doing something wrong, for correction, that's telling you what to do that's right, and for training in righteousness to make you and your life confirm conform more and more with who Christ is and what he's like in his righteousness. Why? So that we as God's people can be complete, mature, perfect, your version might say. Equipped for every good work. Ready to do everything that we need. There is nothing that God will ever call you to do. There's nothing that ever come up in this life that you will not be able to tackle if you know and understand and apply God's word. And so one of the best things that you can do if you want to become more like Christ is come to church and sit under preaching. And the church is going to help you to do that. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is like no other book. And you know that, and I know that you know that, but this is the good news. You can become more like Christ not only through suffering and things going badly this year. You can make this a good year if you commit to sit under preaching. Come ready to hear. Pray that the Lord would help you to focus. Take notes if you need to. I know that minds wander in and out. That's why I pat the pulpit sometimes, to snap you in, okay? But if you take notes, that helps. Um, that's what I do when I'm listening to preaching, is I take notes in my Bible, and just try to focus and see what you can get out of it. And yes, there's going to be some things that you hear that you already know. And there's going to be some things that might be new. But everything that you hear, you have to remind yourself, if it's coming from the Word of God, it's profitable. And it's going to help you. And it's going to make you more like Christ. Second, uh, sorry, First Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Your version might say the milk of the Word that by it you may grow up into salvation. You know, if you're trying to put on muscle, um, you're trying to work out, you know, you're lifting weights, but you need to feed that with nutrients. You need protein. You need protein. You can get that from meat. You can get that from eggs. You can get that from um, protein shakes. But if you're really, really hardcore and you're like, you know, rocky, you're going you're gonna to drink raw eggs. That's like the most hardcore version of trying to get as much protein in you as possible. You don't even care what it tastes like. Well, there's lots of ways that you can 
get the Bible in. You can memorize it. You can study it. You can read commentaries. You can read devotions. You can, you can listen to sermons online. But the most hardcore way to grow is to sit under expository preaching. And by that, I mean actually in the room. I'm not saying it doesn't count if you're listening to sermons online. I listen to lots of sermons online, and I love listening to sermons online. But there's something very powerful about sitting with the other people in your church, and you're all hearing the Word of God preached at the same time. Because what that does is it builds accountability. You and your wife both heard that you need to love her like Christ loves the church. Not just you, she heard it too. And in the same way, whenever you hear any kind of convicting statement, you know that everyone else in the church heard it too. And that's good, because let's say we're preaching against gossip. And then you're standing in the lobby, and you start gossiping. You know that the other person also just heard that what you're doing is wrong. So it's easier to apply the Word of God when you do it as a community. And so it's good for you to supplement whatever you hear um, here with what you hear online, but you, you can't substitute that. You can supplement it, but you can't substitute it. We need to be together. Now, just a footnote, if preaching is biblical and exegetical, this will work. If it's not, if preaching is just fluffy um, and not based and rooted in the Word of God, then that leads to a type of spiritual anorexia. It's like drinking salt water. You feel like you're full, but it, you're still thirsty afterwards. And unfortunately, this happens sometimes where people will be in a church for a very long time, and so you, they feel like they're maturing, and you think that they should be maturing because they've been a Christian for 30 years, but they have not actually heard the inspired Word of God explained and applied to their life. And so they don't grow. And it's like having a protein shake with no protein in it. <laughs> you know, that's just called a milkshake. And so there's a lot of milkshake Christians out there, and they're putting on weight, but it's not muscle, spiritually speaking. And so that's, that's just a sad reality, and it helps us to be um, vigilant and to make sure that that's what we expect from church. And I'm telling you that hopefully I don't lose my mind and start doing that, but um, if you ever move to another church, just bear in mind, you, the main thing you're looking for in a church is that the people there respect the Word of God and that they obey the Word of God, and that's what's preached. So... Simple application. Come to church this year. And of course, I'm preaching in the choir. You're here on this second service too. Um, but that's good. Sitting under preaching. Secondly, something else that's going to help you be more like Christ is submitting to spiritual leaders. And for this, we need Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. And while you're going to Hebrews, I may as well mention that this entire point depends very much on the quality of your leaders. And, and that's unfortunate because... There are a lot of churches with really bad leaders. I mean, it's, it's just a fact. Even the leaders you have, leaders ever, they're all sinners. But different churches have leaders who have a different commitment to living out the Word of God in their own lives. And so it is just a wonderful blessing to be in a situation where you know that you can trust your leaders, that these are people that have your best interest at heart. These are people that are living out the Word of God in their own lives as well, which is not always the case, unfortunately. But Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. 
consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, think about them. We're not talking about political leaders here. These are your spiritual leaders, the, the ones who spoke to you the word of God. And consider, think about the outcome of their way of life. So look at the way that they live and see the results in their life and their family and their finances and their relationships. And if they are applying the word of God and that's having an effect on their life, then you can learn to do the same thing by imitating them, it says. Imitate their faith. And then verse 17, if you drop your eyes down, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. You don't want to be the person who when your name is read out at the elders meeting, because it's on the agenda, again, that when the elders sit down and they open the agenda and they see your name, they groan, oh, this guy, again, on the elders agenda causing trouble in the flock, doing something they shouldn't be doing. How are we going to deal with this? How are we going to pray for this person? How are we go which one of us, after playing rock, paper, scissors, three rounds, is going to be the one who now has to again go and talk to this person about their sin? No, nobody wants to do that. Uh, don't be that person. Rather submit to your elders. And this is such an important thing. I, I've recently been trying to help a, a young man who's in a situation with a church that he was involved in, and the church has disciplined him out of the church for being divisive. And, you know, just in talking to him and hearing his side, man, I, I'm just moved by how right his elders are <laughs> and how he is divisive. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to be, and he doesn't seem to be, but the main thing he's doing wrong is that he's just not trusting them in this particular situation in which they clearly, as an outsider, I can see clearly the elders know more about the situation than he does, and he's just not trusting them. And it's causing trouble. It's causing grief in the church. It's causing grief in his own life and in his relationships, and, and it's heartbreaking. And so sometimes you just need to trust that your elders know more about a situation than you do and that they can't tell you everything because they're protecting people's reputations. And you just have to understand that. If you are ever you know, in trouble at the church for something that you've been teaching in the church or doing or you're living in sin and the elders are helping you repent of that and calling you to repentance, you would want us to protect your reputation as far as possible. That's what you would want from us. That's what we're doing with the people that are going through church discipline or, or whatever's happening. And because of that, we can't just tell you everything to make you know, well, if you knew all the facts, you would definitely agree with us, but we can't give you all the facts. And so you just have to trust your leaders at that point and submit to them. They are shepherding you. They are giving an account for you one day to Jesus. And they're keeping watch over your souls. Now, as I said, this assumes qualified leaders. First Timothy 4.12 says, uh, Paul said to Timothy, set the believers an example in your speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. So these are, are men that have earned through a lifetime of 
reputation building and consistency. They've earned the fact that we should now submit to them and trust them. And that's our responsibility then as a congregation is to obey your leaders. Verse 17 says, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. And at the end it says, the reason you don't want them to groan is because that wouldn't be an advantage to you. It's so wonderful to have a flock that, that trusts the elders. And I, we as an eldership have gone through these things before and we've, we've been concerned that what's going to happen, how's Satan going to use this in our flock? And then the flock responds so well and, and they're so submissive and they're, they're trusting and that's a great responsibility for the elders, but it's also a great joy. And so now we can just get on with the business of shepherding without worrying, is the flock going to turn against the shepherds? And it's a wonderful blessing. So I just want to keep exhorting you, excel still more in that. It also assumes, by the way, that the elders' counsel is from the Bible. Elders don't have authority because they now, like, have a badge. Um, you know, if a cop tells you to do something, well, he's a cop, so you got to do it. But it's not the same with, with the Bible. Uh, with, with spiritual leadership, spiritual elders have authority through the Bible because it's the Word of God that has authority in our lives. So you have every right to say, I hear your counsel that I shouldn't date this person or shouldn't go into debt for this purpose or whatever, but show me in the Bible why it's wrong. And then the elders should be able, that's why an elder's qualification is that they have to be able to teach. That's what that means. Find a verse in Scripture and teach it to you. And if they're like, well, it's not in the Bible, but just trust me from my experience that this is not what you want to do, well, then that's advice, and it's good advice. Usually these are wise people, but that's different from saying, no, this is the authority of God's Word. Does that make sense? So sit, sitting under spiritual leaders is going to help you to become more like Christ. Thirdly, serving each other. This is another way we can become more like Christ. Romans 12, verse 4, talks about this. And we're going to see when we get to 1 Peter Chapter 4, eventually, verse 10, it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Everyone gets a gift when they are a believer. It could be your talents, your natural talents, that are now sanctified for the Lord by the Holy Spirit. And as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So that's First Peter 4.10. But this is Romans 12, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, etc. The point is that different Christians have different gifts given by God, and we need to employ them for the benefit of the body. And the more you do that, the more you become like Christ. Because Mark 10.45 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Having four kids in school, I am astounded by how much the school expects of the parents. I mean, they want the parents not only to pay the school fees, but also show up and volunteer on this day when the school's doing this, and 
they need you to volunteer here and put your name on this list and they want you to give a little bit to this and to give a little bit to that and show up here and support this and buy tickets to this thing and pay for the costume that your kid has to do so they can stand and be a tree in the back of what everyone else is doing. And I mean, it's just, it's just never ending. It's almost like a full-time job just being a parent of a kid in school these days. Uh, you add to that all the, the other clubs and sports and groups and communities that we have, and it's very natural for these groups to just expect us to serve and to be part of that. Um, you join a karate dojo, and now the karate dojo is redoing the floor, and everyone has to show up and help redo the floor. Or they're, um, you, know, you join the Rotary Club. And they're like, we're going to be doing this to help spruce up our building or whatever it is, whatever club you're part of, there's always something to do that you now need to participate in. And people do it gladly because they want to be part of that community. And that's a good thing. And then they come to church and they just want to kind of sit. Just want to hear a good sermon and they want to sing some good songs and they want to drink some good coffee and then they want to go home and Go and serve the school, whatever it is. And they're burnt out by the time they come to church. And it's not very popular these days, but I believe it's biblical for us to respond to some of these commitments that we have and say, I'm sorry, I cannot participate because I'm a member of a church and I already participate there. You know, it's, it's a discussion my wife and I sometimes have to have where uh, friends of ours are putting in more time and effort into a school function volunteering and we just can't because we're we're committed to serving the church and you almost feel bad saying that uh, we kind of have the well my husband's a pastor of the church that's why we have to do it so we kind of have that card that you don't all have but but it is kind of an unpopular thing you have to say listen I'm going to be the one that's not carrying as much weight as all of you because I'm I'm doing that in my church unfortunately a lot of people do it the other way around they say well I can't help at the church because I'm so busy with everything else I'm involved in. I can't even come to church because of the Jeep club I'm in is doing a Jeep thing on Sunday, you know, whatever it is. So, and so I have to be part of that. Well, no, we need to serve one another primarily. Now, I'm not saying you can't serve anywhere else. Of course not. But there's only one place that we're told by God that we have to serve, and that's in the church. Everything else you do is an optional extra. And I'm, I'm not discouraging those things. I'm saying it's good. It's a great way to be part of the community. It's a great way to be a witness if you can. That's a great way to pull your weight in those clubs that you're part of. That's wonderful. If you have time and energy left over after you've done what God says you have to do, which is serve one another in the church. And the more you do that, the more you're going to become like Christ. So make a resolution this year to serve Christ's bride to give time and energy and sacrifice convenience and comfort in order to be part of what the church community is doing. Fourthly and finally, we've seen that you ways that we can help you in a, a little more painless way to become more like Christ is through sitting under preaching, although that can be painful at times, submitting to spiritual leadership, uh, serving each other, but finally, there's no way around it. This is the painful part, um, suffering in the church. So for this, I want you to turn to James chapter 1. And then we're also going to go to Colossians 3. Um, 
So earlier I told you about how a, a, a good year in wine is usually assumed to be a year where everything went right with the weather. But something interesting happened in 1976. In May of 1976, there was this uh, wine tasting um, challenge in Paris. It became known as the Judgment of Paris, where through these blind taste testers, these Parisian judges, these French judges, chose California wines instead of French wines as the best wine in the world. They only did this because they couldn't see the labels. It was a blind taste testing, right? And they were appalled, and it was this huge upset because what do Californians know? Can anything good come from California? It's a good question. My wife is one, and wine is the other. But other than that, there's not much that, good that comes out of California. And the French were appalled by this. And so a lot of studies were done, like how could the Californians possibly produce better wine than these ancient regions in Bordeaux and you know, these, these great uh, regions in France? And it turns out that it's not always a good year that produces the best fruit. And that California, being as dry as it is and as hot as it is and with the soil as rocky as it is, does something to the vines that creates what viticulturists now call the tortured vine um, effect. And that the vines are so tortured by the environment that they produce extremely robust grapes that are very flavorful. And it turns out that they make good wine and grape juice, which we'll have some later. Um, and uh, it's not the wine, the grape juice. And it's because the vines have suffered and not had a good year. And so they produce this good fruit. Well, in the same way, the Bible tells us it's not when all the conditions line up perfectly that you become more like Christ necessarily, but James 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. So just like we saw in 2 Timothy 3, 16 that, and 17, that it's profitable, the word of God, sitting under the preaching of the word of God, studying the word of God, is profitable to make you mature and complete, lacking nothing, in the same way, trials do that too. Difficulties. This is a tool that God uses. Yes, it's painful, but it works. It's extremely efficient. Going through a difficult trial, whether it's a physical trial of surgery or disease or just something that's hurting you, some sort of chronic pain, or an emotional trial, the, the loss of a loved one, um, or the emotional trials that come from tension in relationships and difficulty and the hurt that comes from that, or sort of the stress and the burden that you bear of regret of things that you've done, or maybe something's happened to you that's, that's truly grievous, and these things are real. And our first reaction is sometimes like, why, Lord, why are you doing this to me? But the Bible is clear, like, God loves you, and these things aren't bad for you. This is what it means when it says in Romans 8 that God will work together all things for good. He's, that's what he's doing. He's producing a good year in you. He's producing good fruit in you. And that's why James says, count it all joy when you meet various trials because they produce the steadfastness that leads to maturity 
And that should be your goal. That maturity means you're more like Christ. You know Christ better. You understand Christ better. You're more useful to Christ. Hebrews 5.8 says about Jesus that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect or mature, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's not saying Jesus wasn't perfect and then became perfect. That's why I keep translating that word as mature. It's a, it's a valid rendering of the Greek there. The point was that even Jesus grew. We read that this morning. Remember the last verse of uh, Luke chapter 2? Is that the, the boy, meaning Jesus, grew in his stature. That means physically he grew from being a teenager to a man. And his stature and his wisdom and his favor with God and man. So as he grew from being a baby to a child to a teenager to a grown-up, he was growing in, he was learning things in his wisdom. And, and he became mature through what Hebrews tells us. Um, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I haven't preached through Hebrews, and that's a very mysterious concept and verse, so I don't want to push it too hard, but my point there simply is that even Christ, suffering even had an effect in Christ that is an example to us, why would we want to avoid that if he even went through that? Now, I said that this point, though, was suffering in the church because this is four ways that the church can help you become more like Christ. And so far, I've just been talking about suffering in general, but if you look at Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15, it tells us how the church actually helps you by bringing suffering into your life. And you're like, wait a minute, how does the church bring suffering into my life? Well, church is made up of people. People are made up of sandpaper. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but in a spiritual sense, um, people are abrasive. And they can rub up against you the wrong way, and they can leave little rashes just like sandpaper. You need to remember that. So Colossians 3.12 says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which Indeed, you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, why is Paul, the apostle, writing to a church in Colossae, a church of Christians, and telling them, one of the main things you're going to need to work on, Christian church, is being patient with each other, being kind to one another, being humble and meek, bearing with one another. We just kind of read that, bearing with one another. There is a command in the Bible that you just read that says you have to put up with me. That's what it means. That I'm going to be difficult for you and you're going to have to put up with it. You're going to have to bear with me and I'm going to have to bear with you and we're going to have to bear with each other. That just implies that there's something we're going to do to each other that requires us to be forbearing and patient and putting up with one another. And not only that, there may be a complaint that we have against one another. And when that happens, you have to forgive one another. So Paul is giving instructions here that assumes things are going wrong interpersonally. He assumes that we're hurting each other. 
that we are sinning against each other, that we have complaints against each other, that maybe we just have to bear with one another. Maybe your personality is just grating. Maybe your, your um, sense of humor just bugs someone, rubs them up the wrong way or whatever. Well, we have to bear with one another because we're very diverse people all put together because of Christ. Because we're sinners. I, I've told you about Timothy Treadwell before, one of the really fascinating but um, tragic experiences about this young man that he loved grizzly bears and he would go and live with grizzly bears one month for a whole month he would live among the grizzly bears every year for 13 years it makes him the human being that has spent the most time with grizzly bears now grizzly bears are dangerous we know that but he sort of integrated himself into their world and what seemed to be accepted by them and even though Everyone warned him not to do this. He knew better because he knew these grizzlies. And then after 13 years of being around these grizzlies, one day one just turned around and ate him. Just killed him and ate him and his girlfriend on the spot. And there was all these questions like what happened and what was wrong and, what, and why would the bear do this? And surely this guy being an expert knew not to provoke the bear so it couldn't be that. And the answer is very simple. Because it's a grizzly bear. Grizzlies, bears eat people. The reason they hadn't done it before is, I don't know, they weren't hungry. I, it's just what bears do. They're dangerous. When you see one, I mean, I know there's a whole debate. Do you play dead? Do you run? Or whatever it is. Somebody once told me, you know, if it's a brown bear, because if you play dead, they leave you. And then if it's a black bear and you play dead, they eat you. Um, so you just play dead and that's how you know which one you've got because they look the same. I, it doesn't sound like the best it's like the best strategy. As an, as an African, I just know you see something in the wild, you run from it. It doesn't matter what it is, because in Africa, everything can kill you, right? So, but it's not the bear's fault. The bear's just being a bear. It's not like Treadwell did anything wrong. He's living with grizzlies. Grizzlies kill people. But in the, then you come to the church, and you're like, I don't believe how this church could possibly have somebody who would say such a thing to me. That was highly offensive. And you're like, yeah, because it's a human. That's what humans do. Humans hurt each other. They're made out of sandpaper. <laughs> They're going to rub you the wrong way. They're going to say things in an unkind way. They're going to be insensitive. It's just it's part of being human for now. And we're, the more we become like Christ, hopefully the less we're doing those things. But until we're perfect, we're, by definition, imperfect. And so, yes, we're going to sin against one another. So you may be annoyed by someone in the church or frustrated, irritated, disappointed, betrayed, attacked at some point in your life. Don't turn your back on Christ's bride. Just remember that he's being patient with you and he wants you to be patient with one another. And God uses sinners to sanctify you. When I became a teenager, I learned that new word that all teenagers learn, exfoliation, where your dermatologist tells you the reason this is happening is because you're not exfoliating. So exfoliating is when you take those little rough things and you rub them all over your face or whatever to get rid of the, the dead skin cells. Well, that's what we do. That's how we mature is we exfoliate one another. We, we rub that grit on each other. Metaphorically, don't touch me. You know, you know what I mean, right? But there's that, just in our personality and our interaction with each other, it's, it's a little bit painful and it's a little bit rough, but it's necessary. So how should you respond? Well, a common response to people being hurt in the church is that they leave the church. Well, that doesn't solve anything because guess what? All the other churches are made out of sinners too. 
So the only way to avoid sinners is to not go to church, but you don't really have that option, do you? Because the Bible says you have to go to church. And why would the Bible say you have to go to church if the Bible also states the people there are going to hurt you? It's almost like Jesus knows what's good for you. And, and he knows what's best for you, and what's best for you is to go through the suffering, and the suffering helps you become like Christ. Now, please, just a footnote. Don't, that doesn't justify you being annoying. Don't, don't you be, well, my job is to be the extra rough sandpaper. I'm going to exfoliate this year. I'm like, no, 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 but, but it's going to happen on its own. So the right response is to turn to Jesus, to emulate his response when he was sinned against by those that he came to serve. And he forgave them, and he was patient, and he was loving. He wasn't surprised, and he wasn't embittered. That's how you respond. And those are four ways that you can become more like Christ this year. Now, in Peter Mayle's book, um, A Good Year, uh, well, that's not a good year. Yeah, yeah, he's, got, he's the one that wrote A Year in Provence, which is really a brilliant book that you should really read. It's hilarious, but he's got a sequel to that that's called A Good Year, and it's a, it's a novel. A Year in Provence is about his time in, um, in France, but A Good Year is a novel about his experiences, and in it, there's this vineyard that produces terrible wine. It's just terrible wine. It's like the worst wine. And uh, this guy inherits this vineyard, and he goes, and it's just this terrible wine. But what, there's this little plot in the, in the background in the book is that there's one corner of this vineyard that is producing some of the highest quality boutique wine in the world, super expensive, and all the people that are really in the, in the know know about this wine. They don't know what the secret is. And there's just this one little corner of the vineyard where that's producing this. And, uh, and they kind of keep it under wraps by the rest of the, the vineyard producing this bad wine. So that's, that's kind of what the plot is about. But as, as I was reading that, I couldn't help but think that's sort of how God uses the elect in the world. Because you've got this whole world full of people that's just producing all of this junk all of the sour stuff and all of the sin, but he's got this secret little corner of people that he calls out and that he saves and sanctifies and puts to work, and that's where the fruit is being produced. And that's us. That's the church. And so, yes, the vines are going to be tortured, and yes, we're going to hurt each other and all those types of things, but in the end, the, the year that God has planned for you is a year that's going to make you more like Christ. It's like a little project that he's got going where he's producing fruits of righteousness. And our job is to go and use that in the world to give him glory, to show what he's so good at. And so to share your testimonies with one another of how God's working in your life and what he's teaching you and how you're repenting of sin and things that you're able to overcome because it gives him so much glory to do that. So these are the various means. Sitting under preaching, submitting to spiritual leaders, serving each other, and suffering in the church. This is how he makes you more and more godly. And don't forget that no matter what happens to you in 2024, it will be a good year. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to sit under preaching of your word. We thank you for giving us your word and helping us to apply it to our lives through your spirit. And also, we now have the wonderful privilege of being able to join in communion and sharing the Lord's table where we remember your, your life and your death and your resurrection on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this year to make us more like you, that we are sometimes very afraid of difficulties and trials and pain. But I pray that as those things come, we would remember that you are good, that you love us, 
and that you use these things to produce good fruit in our lives that lasts for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.